Oh, good morning. That is beautiful. That is a profound truth. And uh, what a privilege it is to be able to speak on Pentecost. It is such a beautiful passage of scripture we're going to be covering today. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm really excited about this series. And I'm also really happy that I sort of get to do with the sword of the spirit because the armor of God is amazing. It's cool. But I get the offensive part of the armor of God. And that is awesome. It's it's pretty great. It's doing damage. It's spiritual warfare. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's what we are speaking about this morning. He says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So you can stand your ground and against the devil's schemes. That's why we do it. Because our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical struggle. It is against spiritual forces of evil. It is against rulers and authorities. It is vastly spiritual. And I think we can all recognize that our world is extremely spiritual, can't we? There is so much happening that we just can't explain. At a church in California, a pastor named Britt Merrick was playing guitar, and he was in, just in the band, and all of a sudden a man ran up the middle aisle of the church, and he was all bleeding, and he just was swearing, and he was cursing at the pastor as he was playing guitar, and he came up onto the stage, and they found that this man actually had a knife on him, and he went after the pastor, and a couple strong guys in the front row came and tackled him. They subdued him, and... Um, they called the police, and obviously they had to end service right there. The police came and took him away. It turns out this man was involved in the occult, and he was possessed. And this church just loved upon him and just prayed for him, and they contended for him. But this man had such vile and contempt for this pastor because of what he represented. One time when we were in Los Angeles, we came across a man who was similarly distraught. He was punching walls. He was kicking things. There was a garage door, and he was beating it with his fists, and he was just swearing at God, and it was a shocking thing to see. And some of our kids, who were sort of naive slash brave, went up to him, and they put their hands on him, and they started to pray for him. And we were, um, I was very nervous about this happening. And suddenly this man, um, he just went, his face just sort of went blank. And then they asked him, they said, would you like to receive Jesus? And this man on the streets of Los Angeles said, I would love that. He prayed, he received Jesus, and he opened his eyes. And it was the biggest, most extreme transformation I've ever seen in my entire life. This is him right here. His name is Alex. And um, he's known in Los Angeles for being out of control and crazy. And he started walking around with us and praying for people. And everybody that came up to Alex said, what happened to you? We've never seen you smile before. You're a different person. What happened? And then he explained. He said, my tormentors are gone and I have Jesus now in my life. And here's the most amazing thing. All these people would look at us and they would say, well, who are you guys? And we'd be like, I don't know. We, we know Jesus. <laughs> the power of Jesus is unbelievable and it is undeniable. And we should expect this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. This is a powerful image. The idea of your enemy being a footstool is an old war picture. Whenever an enemy was conquered, they would become the slave of the conqueror. 
And as a sign of submission, they would bow down in front of them and become a footstool. God is saying that he will give you over. He will give your victory, your enemies over to you in victory. He's saying that I am much, much more powerful. I am Yahweh. He's saying your enemies, they will be a footstool. And who are your enemies? The spiritual forces of evil. That is who we fight. So what is spiritual warfare? There's so much confusion both inside the church and outside the church. Is it actually fighting demons? Is that what spiritual warfare is? Or is it perhaps us calling upon angels or God himself to fight demons or Satan? There's a lot of confusion. One year when our camp used to be on the shoe shop, somebody called me on my cell phone and they, they were calling from the camp next to us and they said, one of our ladies who is an old, mature Christian and is not sort of prone to crazy thoughts, just told me that there's a demon walking from our camp to your camp and you should pray. And I was like, what? I, I don't know how to process this. I don't know how to pray. I don't know if she's making stuff up. This doesn't seem to make sense to me. So we just simply prayed and asked for God's presence. We didn't know where to go with that. In Watson Lake, Yukon, we run a camp up there, and a lot of the older staff would always tell us that there is a resident demon that lives there. And they said he wore a top hat and a suit, and they said to pray against him, and that doesn't really seem right. I don't really see that in Scripture in that way. And here's the problem, is that we have a full spectrum of ideas on what demons are and what they can do and what spiritual warfare even is. Some of it is biblical, but some of it is paganism. And some of it is rooted in old wives' tales. It's sort of theology picked up from Scooby-Doo and the Twilight Zone, all mixed into one understanding that we have of spiritual warfare, and we spit it out, and our understanding is a little bit twisted, I think. The Bible provides beautiful clarity, however, and very vivid and very accurate accounts of what the spiritual world looks like and how to engage the spiritual world essentially how to wield the sword of the Spirit. And so what we're going to be doing in this place is we're going to be looking at Scripture because at the end of the day, we build theology on the truth of Scripture, not experience or old wives' tales. And so I'm just going to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would come. He's the counselor. The Bible says that he leads us into all truth. The Bible itself is a sword. The Bible itself is, li is living and it's active and it leads us into truth. So I'm going to pray and ask that that is truly the case, that it is alive, it is active, and that it speaks to us and frees us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we trust you completely. And Jesus, we want to be a people of the book. God, we believe that you have given us your scriptures to lead us into complete freedom, God, and understanding. God, we know that they set us free, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here, God, that you would renew our minds in areas where we have misunderstanding. Jesus, I pray that you would interpret what is said if it's not falling in line with truth. God, we invite you here. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and minister. Amen. Well, to best understand spiritual warfare, we first need to look at the spiritual world, I believe. We need to look at what angels are, what demons are, and who Satan even is. Any reading of the New Testament is absolutely packed full of demonic encounters. It is throughout all of the New Testament. 
and many encounters with angels, over 300 of them. It is a spiritually charged book. When Jesus was in his boat and he approached the region of the Gerasenes, there was a man that came out to intimidate them. This man was bleeding. He was naked. He came up to Jesus and suddenly recognized that this was no ordinary man. This was actually the Son of God. He saw him and he freaked out. He said in a yelling voice, he said, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. This guy was freaked out. Jesus asked him who he was, and he said that his name was Legion. This was a man who they placed amongst the tombs. It was a graveyard. And they tried to subdue him with chains, but he was so powerful with all the demonic forces within him that he broke the chains. Similarly, they were on his feet, and he broke them off. And this was a man who was naked and cut himself and cried out all day long. He likely hadn't been sleeping in weeks or months because he was up cutting himself and crying out, Scripture says. This was a man who was tormented. A large herd of pigs were there, and Legion begged of him. He said, please cast me into the pigs, just at least the pigs. And so Jesus did exactly that. He cast the demons out of him, and they went into 2,000 pigs, and the pigs went down a steep embankment into the lake, and they drowned there. This is a really beautiful part. The people tending the pigs ran off because now their huge investment was gone. And they went and told people. And people came to see what had happened there. And here's what they witnessed. They witnessed this man who they used to call Legion standing there beside Jesus in his right mind looking peaceful, now fully clothed with full dignity. And they were freaked out at the transformation that they just witnessed. They had no power over this man. They were terrified of him, and suddenly Jesus comes along and immediately transforms him. This is an amazing story, and we can learn so much from this passage. For starters, these demons tormented him night and day. He cried out. He cut himself. He was ashamed. He was naked. He was completely cast away from society. He was destroyed. His entire history was erased. Scripture says that our enemy, the devil, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what they do. A bunch of years back, there was a guy in our church who we prayed for, and he was delivered from demonic possession. And we asked him after the fact, we said, what did those demons want to do with you? And he said, the first demon just wanted to ruin my life. The second demon actually wanted to kill me. And this demon within him would throw him in front of cars We see this all throughout Scripture where demons throw people into fires. Jesus cured a boy that that happened. Into lakes to drown them. They actually just want to destroy. Secondly, nobody could help this man. And before Jesus came upon the scene, nobody could do anything with the issue of demon-possessed or demonized people. Nobody could do a thing. Jesus came along and they instantly submitted and surrendered to Jesus. Instantly. It's unbelievable. Jesus was their hope. When Jesus approached, he was terrified because Jesus had complete authority without even saying a word. The name of Jesus is power. When Jesus asked him what his name was, he said, Legion. But a legion is 6,826 men. 6,826 men. And Jesus cast them into 2,000 pigs. In other words, 
Demons are liars. They twist the truth and they exaggerate it. That is who they are. So what are demons? Are they ghosts? Are they invisible monsters? What are they? What actually are they? It's pretty simple. Demons are simply angels. This is very important in understanding spiritual warfare. So we need to look at angels first. Angels are created by God to worship him and serve him. That's their function. The Greek word came from, sorry, the Latin word for angel is angelus, which means messenger of Jesus. We have a funny idea about angels. When we think of angels in our head, this is probably an image that we get. Something sort of like this. Those are angels. And that couldn't be further from the truth. This is a bit more accurate. (laughs) That's a little bit more what it would look like. Angels are terrifying and powerful. (laughs) But it's a bit more accurate also because the Greek word for angel is angelos, which is always in the masculine form. Angels are not anywhere in Scripture in the feminine form, which is interesting because we always attribute angels to being women or girls, and that's truly not the case. Our picture of angels in the media could not be more wrong. We see lots of shows that depict things, and sometimes we even get this idea that we become angels when we die, and that is absolutely not the case. We are entirely different beings. We are flesh and spirit, and they are spirit. They are immortal, and they are not subject to time in the way that we are. This is why in Philippi, when Paul cast out the demon from the girl, she could tell the future because she was not subject to time. They exist outside of time. This is why things like palm readers and astrologists and other such things are extremely dangerous to us as Christians because although they may know things about the future because of this reality, the fact is is that they want to steal, kill, and destroy. So any information gathered from any of these beings will only destroy us if they're demonic. They are so powerful and absolutely unbelievably in appearance. When they appeared to men, I think about the time when the guards were guarding the tomb of Jesus. These were trained warriors, the strongest warriors. An angel appears, and what happens? The men shake. The Bible says they become like dead men. In other words, they are shaking, they turn white, and they pass out. Because these angels are so majestic. All throughout Scripture, when an angel appeared to a man, he would always assume that his life is about to be taken. They are so majestic. And they are so magnificent that they often have to plead with people not to worship them. When an angel appeared to John on Patmos, he fell down to worship the angel. And the angel yelled this. He said, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets and with all who keep the word of the scroll. He says, worship God. Angels always give glory to God. They always deflect worship to God. They never receive worship, ever. And because they love God, they love you, his children. And so because of that, a big task of theirs is to direct us from sin. Because it's sin that will destroy us. Often we think of angels and we think that there are guardian angels perhaps. And although some of the function of angels does appear to be guardian in nature, there is nowhere in all of scripture that seems to imply that we each have our own guardian angel. 
In Daniel, it says there are 10,000 angels times 10,000. The math on that is about 100 million. It doesn't really make sense that we would each have our own guardian angel, even numerically. And beyond that, they all have different functions, and they're not all designed to be working hand-in-hand with humanity. For example, Michael is the archangel, and he's the head of all the angels. In Daniel 10, Michael is brought in to assist other angels in answering prayer. This is fascinating. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart in understanding this and humbling yourself before God. In other words, somebody prayed. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Listen to this. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. We're hearing an encounter of spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms where Michael is called in as backup. That's so fascinating. See, our prayer affects things, and when we pray, we engage in the spiritual world. Otherwise, we're just dealing with the physical world, but it's pointless. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Often, we just deal with the things that are minute in detail and minute in function. Gabriel's another big deal. He's one of the three angels whose names are mentioned. And he was a special messenger. Gabriel got the best tasks. He got to go tell Mary that she's going to have a baby. Like, Gabriel had all the good jobs. I'm sure the other guys were pretty excited about him not doing that. Some angels are designated as cherubim, which are living creatures. And cherubim, their whole function is this. It is to magnify the holiness and glory of God. Then there are seraphim. They're another class of angels. They have three pairs of wings And they apparently have only the function of praising God all the time. That's all cherubim do. In Isaiah 6, it records this. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Man, that's a cool image. Seraphs are angels who worship God continuously. That's what they do. And it is important to to note that despite their ranks or tasks, all angels have one thing in common, and that is that all angels worship God. That's what they all do. And this is critically important. It is because they worship that they have free will. Because worship has to come from freedom. Love requires free will. And so all angels have free will. Satan was the angel Lucifer, His name meant star of the morning. Scripture seems to suggest that he was the most powerful angel. That even Michael, the archangel, had to get back up from God in dealing with him. And in his pride, he himself wanted to be worshipped. He convinced a third of all the rest of the angels who also have free will to worship him. And God threw them out and he cast them down. Ezekiel 28 records it this way. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. He was Lucifer, star of the morning. But he is now Satan. And that means accuser. Or Beelzebub, which means lord of the dunghill. (laughs) That's the truth. And we've made him out to be way more. We've made him out to be so much more powerful than simply the lord of the dunghill. He is an angel, and his power is very, very limited. 
but we've attributed him to having the same power as God, maybe a little bit weaker, but we sort of assume it's sort of a close fight between Satan and God. We kind of think they're in the same sort of category, but not even close. God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. Even your thoughts. Satan does not know your thoughts. He cannot read your mind. Demons cannot read your mind. They do not know your thoughts. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Satan is not everywhere. He's in one place at one time. So often we hear things like, the devil made me do this, or Satan has done this or that. And I'll tell you what, he probably hasn't. He's in one place at one time, and I really doubt he's in Kelowna. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Satan is impotent. He is powerless. His power has been stripped from him. Any power that he has is from God allowing him to move at certain times for his own purposes. First Peter says, Our enemy the devil prowls around like a, a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour. Only old and impotent lions roar. Only old lions that can no longer fight roar. Did you know that? They're defanged and powerless physically, and all they can do is inflict fear. That's all they can do. But their roar can be heard for 10 miles. This is what they have left. Their power is now in fear. But it is a a deception. A scheme that Paul warns us of. He says this, Make sure that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know what they are. So what are they? And this is really important to understanding what spiritual warfare is. What are his schemes? What actually does the battle look like? Second Corinthians said, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. He is the deceiver. He is the blinder. And he desires to create in you fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. This is the very root of spiritual warfare. Second Corinthians says this, So, for we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. He's spelling it out really clearly. This is how you engage in spiritual warfare. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds are arguments. Strongholds are beliefs or understandings. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought, and we make it obedient to Christ. Thinking, what, this is warfare? Fighting arguments and deception? That sounds boring. That's warfare? Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, Satan approaches Eve and says, Did God really say that? Is that really what God said to you? It's a distortion. It's a deception. And I see this all the time. There was a young man who came into my office and said, I've started drinking. I go and I drink on Friday nights and Saturday nights. I get drunk every weekend now. And I said, that, why? Like, he said, well, I have a friend who told me that the Bible says nowhere not to get drunk. And I said, are you serious? We opened the scriptures and we went through it and we, we talked about it. It's the classic case of did God really say that? On Facebook a few years ago, there was this little 
article that went around and everybody was forwarding it. It was of a girl who saved herself sexually till marriage and she says now she regrets it. She said that she wished that she had lots of sex before she got married and now she didn't and she regrets it. And it sounds good. This article sounds great. But at the end of the day, it is a poor girl who just went through divorce and is now looking back and justifying the situation that she's in now. All research shows the opposite of that. All research shows that the best sex is within marriage. All research shows that, secular and Christian research. Of all the high school graduates that have had sex, that's a half of them approximately, two-thirds wish that they had waited. All the research is against what this one little article is saying. However, thousands of girls are using this article as justification for sin in the same way, did God really say that? Did God really say to remain sexually pure? We've even seen the Bible come under attack and people say, well, what about this additional book over here? What about this other truth? Historically, I've read many books that point to things that are not even truth and they use this to validify the fact that the Bible is no longer accurate and it is scholarly garbage. And people say, is the Bible even the word of God? Did God really say these things? It's an attack against the very foundation of the word of God. You see, spiritual warfare is deception. That's what it is. And as a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you. So the same way that Legion felt about Jesus is the same way that the spiritual forces of evil feel about you. So spiritual warfare is not demons fighting you. You're not in a battle against demons. That's not what it is. It is a fight against the knowledge and lordship of God. Think about Satan and Jesus. After fasting, 40 days, after fasting for 40 days, Satan said, turn this rock into bread. I know you're hungry, turn it into bread. And Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then he takes him to the temple and says, throw yourself down, get your angels to save you. I know they can do this. Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, he take him, takes him up to a mountain and says, all this can be yours. All the kingdoms of this earth can be yours. And Jesus had worshiped the Lord and worship him only. Jesus always responds with scripture. That was his response. It was truth. Jesus dealt with the spiritual forces of evil with truth. See, it's your sin that will destroy you. That is the thing that will ruin your life, is your own innate sinful desire. Spiritual warfare is designed to appeal to that nature. And we fight it simply with truth. That is why the full armor of God, the only offensive weapon, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is our most powerful weapon because it is offensive and it is truth. And it is the thing that will demolish strongholds and lies against the truth. Look at the armor. It all opposes deception. The belt of truth, who Christ really is, it opposes deception. The breastplate of righteousness, that is righteousness that is obtained by Christ and his leadership. Feet fitted with peace, that is active in sharing the gospel, which is the truth of Jesus. The shield of faith, this is what Phil spoke on last weekend. This is the shield that extinguishes arguments or lies or distortions. And the helmet of salvation, that's our salvation, the gospel. 
the assurance of our faith. And all of it is specifically designed to oppose the deceiver. And he wants to blind and he wants to cause darkness. And darkness throughout scripture is always referred to as sin. He wants to create darkness. And darkness hates light. John 3.20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I think we've all witnessed this. We've noticed that people who are living in conscious sin will say things like, I don't want to go to church because they're all judging me. Everybody is judging me there. And they feel exposed. And it's not that anybody is actually judging them or even saying a word of judgment to them. The fact is, is that darkness hates light. Sin hates light. Hates it. And so this is how we fight our own sin in our own lives is we add light. This is why worship is spiritual warfare. When we get together here and when we worship and we proclaim truth, that is powerful spiritual warfare. When you're in your car and you turn on worship, that is powerful spiritual warfare. You're adding light and truth, and the distortion and the deception of the enemy fades away. The fruit of the Spirit engages. Think about this. When do we sin the most? When is our sinful nature most turned on? It is when we feel empty and discouraged and full of fear. And we try to fill those things with other things. When we are empowered, when we have peace and hope and joy, the fruit of the Spirit, our sinful nature shrinks down to almost nothing, doesn't it? Worship is profound spiritual warfare. That is why prayer is powerful spiritual warfare. It's aligning yourself with the will of God. Martin Luther says it's the most powerful weapon that we wield. It's unbelievable in its strength. And this is why proclaiming truth is spiritual. That's why church is so important. When we come here and when we worship and when we talk about the truth of the scripture and when we pray, we are dealing with unbelievably powerful spiritual warfare. Do you guys see how that is? That is why when you spend time with God in your own time in the morning or in the evening, that is spiritual warfare. That is when we decide that we don't need to spend time with God or need to be in our word and we start to be deceived and distort truth. We fall into huge problems. When we start to justify our sin, we know we are losing. I hear this a lot. You know what? God hasn't given me a husband or wife yet. That is why I'm into pornography. It's like, man, you're justifying your sin. You're being deceived. It is, did God really say that? It is a distortion. When you justify sin, you are losing the battle every single time. And we hear it in every single way. God isn't providing for me, so I need to skim a little bit of money on my taxes. I need to do this. I need to do that. God isn't doing this or that. It is simply spiritual warfare. Did God really say that? And we stop believing the truth. That is why our own personal devotion life is unbelievably powerful. And this is why teaching our children and by being active in the church and active in the, in the lives of younger people is spiritual warfare because we are revealing truth. Listen to the commands he gives to the churches in Revelation. This is how he tells them to deal with the oppression that they're facing. To the Ephesians. The Ephesians are surrounded by temple worship. The temple of Diana, 
the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis is deeply satanic. Thousands of prostitute priestesses in this temple. It is an unbelievably huge temple. Orgies happen in this place. Untold sin is happening in this place. This is in Ephesus. And what does Jesus say to the church of Ephesus? He says, repent and love me. Follow me. He says, follow the truth. That's how you deal with spiritual warfare. Follow the truth. To Smyrna, they are facing direct demonic persecution that are praying against them. Witch doctors are praying against them. What does Jesus say how to fight this? Trust God and be faithful. To Pergamum, he says, you dwell in Satan's throne. They have a huge temple to Zeus. In this temple, people would be healed by laying down on the floor and snakes would slither over them. It was fiercely demonic and satanic. And how does Jesus say to deal with that oppression? He says, be pure in thought and deed. He says, follow the truth. In Thyatira, there's false teachers, including Jezebel. Jesus says, listen to the truth and live holy. To Philadelphia, they actually have a synagogue to Satan in Philadelphia. How does Jesus say to deal with it? He says, hold fast to my word. Hold fast to my word. That's how you deal with it. What will destroy you? God says in Hosea, my people are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. That's what we're destroyed by. Spiritual warfare is wielding the truth of the word of God. That's what it is. It is demolishing arguments and pretension that sets itself up against the word of God. So our weapon is scripture and truth. Satan is a roaring lion. He is defanged and defeated. Never forget that. He is a roaring lion, which means he is defeated. And I find it ironic that Satan is described as a lion because the listeners would have recognized something. In many countries where natives live in jungles, they know full well that where there's predatory cats, that those predators will never attack them head on. Only from behind on unsuspecting prey. So often they'll put masks on the back of their head so it appears that they're always facing backwards and frontwards. They don't dare be caught on the defense in these jungles. And the same way we as a church are not ever meant to be on the retreat. We are given armor. And we're given armor to fight, aren't we? We're not given armor to wall ourselves into church buildings. That's what we're created to do. We were called to be a people that fight for the cause of Christ every single day. Right now, human trafficking is a huge problem in our world. And the reason why there's so much human trafficking is because of the mindset that God really never told us about our sexual purity. And it's internet pornography that is fueling human trafficking. We deal with this with the truth of the word of God. All of our ills in this world can all be dealt with when we walk close to the shepherd and trust him and say, you know what? I'm with you. And as a church, we can stand up and say, the word of God is king. And we can hold the world to beautiful standards on treatment of women. And in the same way that so many people are dying of diseases that they need not die of, because we have medication, and dying of starvation and hunger, it is simply because we are asking ourselves, did God really say that I should be generous with my money? Did God really say that all that I have is his? 
Did God say that? We as the church are called to be the ones that take the forefront and fight for the oppressed and the downtrodden, and our weapon is the word of God. Because his truth sets us free, and it will set the world free. Our weapon is the word of God. And let me ask you this. Is, do you know your scriptures? Are you in your scriptures every day? If somebody stood in front of you and gave a great sounding argument that sounded right, or you read a book, or somebody on the street told you something, do you know if it's the word of God and it is truth, or it is not? Scripture says that in the end times, many people will be deceived by false prophets. They didn't know they're being deceived. They didn't choose to be deceived. They just were because they didn't know their scriptures. And where does your influence come from? If it's from media and culture, then that will appeal to your sinful nature. I think in our day and age, the bulk of our spiritual warfare comes from our media which is highlighting the sinful nature and it's creating within us temptation and a desire to sin? Or is your influence from the perfect and timeless word of God? It is our innate sinful desire that will destroy us. That's what destroys us. If the book of Revelation had Kelowna in it, the church of Kelowna, what would it say? We would all say that our city is full of a fair amount of greed and envy. It's hard not to drive down the highway without seeing a car that's much better than yours or a boat or a lifestyle or something that's way better than yours. We would say that our city is full of lust. It's a city that loves the world and loves sin. Jesus would say the same thing to us that he says to all the churches. He would say, hold fast to my word. Follow truth. Repent. Do not be deceived. Which is the scheme of our enemy to blind and distort and to create darkness which is a void of truth. That is his scheme to create darkness. But we need to remember that darkness is far inferior to light, is it not? Light overcomes darkness in an instant. The truth of the word is light and it overcomes darkness in an instant. And darkness cannot overcome light, can it? Sometimes we take the posture of defense or weakness, forgetting that light is way superior and forgetting that Legion, when he saw Jesus, cried out for mercy because at the end of the day, we are much, much, much more powerful because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Sometimes we forget that. Let me invite you to bring warfare into your home. Make your home a place of worship. When you're feeling discouraged, when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling tempted, bring worship into your home. Bring the word of God into your home. Make it something that your home stands for. That when you wake up in the morning, you seek the truth of God because that is what will overcome the warfare in your life, which is the appealing of your sinful nature. Let me invite you to pray. I believe that as a church, when we stand behind worship, prayer, and scripture, we are doing a powerful work. Willow One Prayer is tomorrow night. And Willow One Prayer has been an unbelievable thing. If we are a church of prayer, we will have victory in this valley. If we are a church that simply depends on our own power and our own strength, we will be destroyed. Let me invite you. We're going to worship now. And, and I would just like to ask you to simply invite the Holy Spirit to search your heart.
and just point out areas in your life that you have distorted the truth or justified sin. Areas in your life where you have looked at the world and said, you know what, I don't trust you, God, with that. That seems better than what you say. Did you really say that, God? Did you say it? And I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to search your heart because he desires to free us. Jesus didn't come to the earth to be tortured, spit upon, and hung on a cross naked to keep you in line. He came to set you free from the thing that will destroy you, and that is your sin. He came to set you free so that you can live a life full of peace and not anxiety. This is who he is, and this is what he can do in our lives. Just like in the life of Alex, how he freed him from direct oppression and gave him peace and a purpose for living. He wants to free you from your own sin to give you peace and freedom and a life that is full of joy. Amen? Let's just pray. Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, I pray that you would search us. God, that you'd reveal to us, that you'd enlighten our eyes, areas that we have justified sin, God, that we have questioned your lordship. And God, we want to be a people that stand on your word, the sword of the spirit. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people in this valley that represent you accurately, God that hold up the truth, God, but with incredible love. God, that we would not be a people that condemn, but we would be the same as you, God, that we don't come to condemn, but show people how to be saved. Jesus, I pray that you would do a mighty work in this family. I pray, God, that you would use us in this valley and throughout the whole world, Jesus, and I pray that you would free us from our sin. God, we thank you for this family and this body. And I pray now, God, that as we worship you, that you would just bring truth and light into our lives, God. And remind us that we are your children. Remind us that we have the victory. Remind us that you are much more powerful, God, and that light is far superior to darkness. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Amen.